Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, good morning. Hi, everybody. You guys look very warm. Uh, Today, we are glad that you are here. My name is Mike, and uh, welcome to our church community. Uh, One thing I want to let you know about, too, before we dive in, we are taking sign-ups for something called Rooted, which is uh, Mariner's way of building discipleship, the life of God uh, in us. And I got to tell you, I always hate feeling like the used car salesman. You know, it's like, hey, I got to plug this thing. My wife and I had to do this last fall as a condition of my employment. And so I showed up with very low expectations thinking, you know, don't these people know who I, I teach this stuff. I mean, I don't need this. And we were shocked at how great it was. We were absolutely shocked at how great it was. So I can actually say, uh, hey, this is a really good thing. You should check it out. We have room for 100 of you, and you can sign up online. And that's all I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, because the, the Bible study doesn't quite fit. Small group doesn't quite fit. It's just this re- kind of interesting uh, discipleship experience. So I um, want to encourage you to check that out, too. We, this morning, are going to spend some time uh, in the book of Matthew, which is uh, the series we're in. But as always, the book of Genesis beckons. So we're going to start in Genesis 3, the exact same passage we started at last week. How many of you were here last week? Okay, you came back, which, you know, that's not my fault. Uh, I did my best to scare you. Uh, And then we're going to go to Genesis 12. How many of you remember Genesis 12 from last week? I don't know why I'm asking. I mean, that was fewer hands. How How many of you don't like Christmas? Be honest. How many of you just, like, are ready for January? Okay, there's a few honest people. Nicely done. For the rest of us, we got a week left to kind of get in the mood, whatever that means. And uh, so we have Christmas Eve, but today we want to spend a little more time on the Christmas story and we want to look at it in a slightly different way because the very familiarity of the story is the thing that actually prevents us from the wonder and the awe and the kind of reverence the story deserves. And so we want to spend some time this morning. Starting at Genesis 3, we'll go to Genesis 12. If you were here, those will be familiar. We'll then go to Deuteronomy 23, just because we can. That will take us then to Matthew, and it will be glorious and exciting. How about the glockenspiel over there? I mean, has no, no, you okay, thank you for clapping. But I thought, it, I made the mistake of thinking it was a xylophone. I said last night, hey, isn't it cool we have a xylophone? And there was booing because it's a glockenspiel. Do you know? Does anyone know that? I've never, I think he's making it up, quite honestly. I have no idea what you're talking about. Genesis chapter 3. Now the story of the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating all things and declaring them to be good. He creates male and female, declares them to be very good. He nestles them in this garden called Eden. And Genesis 1 and 2 represent the world the way God intended it to be. The story turns abruptly in Genesis 3. We have the serpent that shows up that tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve, into disobedience. They rebel, and so sin and death enter the world. God brings judgment immediately on this serpent. And he says something very interesting. Genesis 3, verse 15. I, this is God speaking, I, God, will put enmity or animosity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between her seed or offspring and her seed and offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his 
heal. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this is one of those reasons why you're not really stoked on the Bible. Because you read this and you go, so we got a talking snake talking to Adam and Eve. And, and then God says to the snake, there's going to be war between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent. And then there's this he just uh, we're talking about we're talking about offspring all of a sudden and then there's just the singular masculine pronoun he will strike a fatal blow against the serpent but somehow the serpent will bite his heel and wound him in the process and you're kind of going okay I'm not really sure what all of that is about the idea is this is the earliest promise in the bible of god's intention to send someone who will begin the rescue effort of returning creation back to the way God intended it to be. So there's the singular he who will come from the offspring or seed of a woman. Now, for those of you biology majors, you know, right, women and seed, that combo doesn't go together, right? It's, it's dudes and seed that goes together, not women and seed, right? And if you've if you got kids here and you want to explain that later, go for it. So biologically, that's not the right way to say it. But biblically, almost, I mean, everywhere else, it's always offspring is reckoned through the man, the man's seed. This is the only place in the Bible where it says, from the seed of a woman will come this rescuer. That becomes very important in a little bit. Go, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Ah, yes, Genesis chapter 12. As the Old Testament unfolds, we gradually get clearer and clearer pictures of who this he is who will war against the serpent and, and, and take part in the redemption of God's world. We get more and more information about who this person is going to be and what lineage they're going to have. Genesis 12, you remember this. We meet a man named Abram who we know in the story as Father Abraham. And there's this promise given to him in Genesis 12 verse 2. God says to this man, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So in other words, you, the singular man, will have more descendants than you could possibly imagine. I will make your name great. You, in turn, will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And everybody on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that blessing was understood to be connected to the promised one from Genesis 3, the he who will come and crush the serpent. So, Genesis 3, the offspring of a woman. Genesis 12, the offspring of this man, Abraham, who will be formed into a nation. From that nation will come one who will be a blessing to all the earth. In Genesis 49, this person will come from the tribe of Judah, we saw that last week from 2 Samuel, come from the line of David. The point I want to make in doing this fun little detour is that bloodlines mattered in the Old Testament. The purity of your bloodlines, and it mattered for two reasons. We've got to get this to understand the Christmas story. The first reason why purity of bloodlines mattered is for national identity. In other words, the Jews were separate from the nations as God's chosen people, and they were commanded not to intermarry, just to marry other Israelites, to keep their national identity as separate from those of the nations around them. But then the second reason why bloodlines mattered so much is because at some point through the Jewish nation, there would come a rescuer, a Messiah, a king, an anointed one who would be God's promised deliverer. And so literally, we have records of women, when they would be in childbirth, praying, God, may this be Messiah, as they were giving birth. 
So it was a huge deal, and there were very harsh penalties for people who would marry outside of Israelite society because if you married a Hittite, right, which we've all struggled with, or a Moabite or whatever, if you married outside the redemptive community, guess what you're saying? I have no interest in Messiah coming through me. Okay, so it was a big deal. Are you with me on big deal factor? Okay, now go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. There's this teaching that Moses gives about the consequences of uh, polluting the bloodlines, right? The keeping the bloodlines pure was a huge, huge deal. And Moses uh, gives voice to this. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. This is central to our understanding of the Christmas story. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. Now, to understand this, you've got to understand this phrase, forbidden marriage. It refers to any, any birth where the paternity of the father was in question. Okay, so it could be out of wedlock. It could be adultery. It could be incest. It could be any number of really unsavory scenarios that, that, and, and these were called, these, uh, the, the children born of these forbidden marriages were called mamzers, M-A-M-Z-E-R. Our, we have kids here. The B word that rhymes with pastor. Um, <laughs> that, that English word isn't quite strong enough. Uh, because this, it's not that they were born out of wedlock, but th- they were born out of a forbidden union, something that wasn't allowed. If there were any questionable circumstances, and the reason you would exclude them is so they couldn't marry in to an, a, a Jewish, uh, into the Jewish nation. So literally, mamzers were not allowed to marry uh, Jews. They had to be married somewhere else because they would be polluting the bloodline because we weren't quite sure who the dad was. Are you with me on mamzer? Okay, And there were categories of mamzer, actually, when you get there. Now, go to Matthew chapter 1. When you get to Matthew, and we read this part of the story that we all know so well, we kind of miss the craziness of it a little bit, because it's so overly familiar. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. How stoked are you two kids that your parents decided to sit in the second row? Not stoked at all. It's like, man, I can't even, I can't even sleep. I got to look like I'm, literally, he's been looking at my knees the whole time. And I can't blame you. <laughs> right? But it's like, really? I got to look like I'm paying attention. Let me tell you, my parents used to drag me to church and it was horrible. So I feel your pain. I really do. I really do. But I'm much better looking than the dude I had to listen to. All right? So uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 Poor kid. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together in marriage, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And you guys all take that with a straight face. I mean, do you re- can you blame outsiders for thinking we believe some wacky stuff? We believe some wacky stuff. If I came here and said, hey guys, I got great news. CNN is broadcasting that there is a 16-year-old girl in Fresno who is pregnant and she says God is responsible. (laughs) How many of you would 
jump in your cars, make the trek to Fresno, and be there for the birth. Zero. You wouldn't, I mean, we you see, it just would go, yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, it's so out of the realm of possibility, you, you just go, well, no, that, that is a case of somebody needing attention, or, you know, they will need therapy, or pity this poor kid, you know, I mean, but nobody would take that seriously, and back then, the circumstances were even more ridiculous, because when it says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, Mary, if she were a normal Jewish girl, was 12, between 12 and 14 years old. Joseph was between 16 and 18, all right, if they're average. They live in a village of 200 plus people or so. They come together, their parents agree uh, on this union, and they throw a big festival, and thus begins the betrothal period that usually lasts about a year. During this year, they're considered husband and wife. They're called husband and wife. If one of them dies, uh, the other one is a widow or a widower. If one of them gets pregnant and not by the person they're betrothed to, it's called adultery and they're liable uh, to be put to death under Jewish law. The only way you can end the, the betrothal is through divorce. They were husband and wife. The only thing they didn't do was live together and have relations of a certain kind, if you know what I'm saying. I just, I think I'm funny. I really do. And I've got these kids here and I'm like, come on, this is funny. Oh, and some of you are going, no, it's not, bro. No, it's not. You really, you're the 16-year-old Fresno girl that needs therapy. You were just projecting. I may look pregnant, but I am not. Um, so, <laughs> to say that Mary and Joseph are engaged and she's pregnant saying the Holy Spirit did it. You have to understand in a small town of 200 people, do you think there was a bit of scandal attached to that announcement? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I mean, you ha this, this would have rocked this little village. And if you're Jewish and you hear this story, what do you think of the child? Mamzer. That's the word. Is this a questionable birth? <laughs> Absolutely. We have no idea. And so, and Joseph draws the same conclusion. Notice the next verse. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In other words, the only way you could break an engagement was by getting a divorce, and there were two ways you could get a divorce back then. You could get a public, very public divorce, expose her shame to the community, and cast her out. Or you could divorce her quietly in front of two witnesses. In the Old Testament, every legal matter had to be established by two or more witnesses. Now, the reason Joseph is righteous is because he had to be crushed. His family was shamed. He felt betrayed. And so he very easily had every legal right to just put her in front of the whole community and cast her out. But instead he chooses very quietly, not to shame her publicly, but to divorce her. God has to intervene at this point, and we can't, you know, we, we can't blame Joseph for this at all. After Joseph considered this, an angel of God appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is what's so interesting. The virgin birth. 
is kind of a big deal. If you're here and you kind of go, yeah, I'm not really, I, I'm not really sure that happened. And you know what? That's fine. If you believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God, if you believe those four words, then I think you've got to be open to the possibility of people rising from the dead and virgins giving birth. If, if, there, if the Bible's God exists, then this is like par for the course. But the second thing I want you to notice is the virgin birth is central to the story because it's the fulfillment of Genesis 3. The seed of a woman. In other words, with no help from a dude, there's no seed from a dude involved in this. The seed of the woman. He will crush the serpent's head. So that's why this is central to the story. is because this is the fulfillment of this. It's the only place it's mentioned, right? The seed of a woman, and this is where it's fulfilled. So it turns out to be a pretty big deal. She gives birth to a son. All this, verse 22, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the thing I want you to recognize, and I'm sorry I have to come even closer. (laughs) The reason this is such a big deal is of all the ways for Messiah to come to the earth, why would he choose this one? Now, you could say, hey, I don't ever remember Jesus being called a mamzer. So maybe you're kind of making this up. I want to show you a couple of places where Jesus is taunted, and we miss it in English, but there's something going on. And that his birth, I just want to make the point, his birth was a source of controversy. That we domesticate the Christmas story. We sanitize it. We make it all peaceful and nice and hallmarkish. When in actuality, the first thing that Jesus had done is invite two teenagers to suffer public humiliation for his name. They were not embraced when Mary's holding to the story and Joseph's not divorcing her. And this will turn out to be something that will kind of define Jesus in some ways throughout his ministry. So I'm going to try to convince you of this. Go to Mark chapter 6, if you would. Jesus is going to his hometown. And Jesus had mixed results in his hometown, right? The first, Luke, after his first sermon in his hometown, the people try to push him off a cliff to his death. Would you say that was a successful sermon? Nope, I've preached some bad ones, but no one's tried to kill me yet. So, okay. Uh, His family, at one point, comes to take him from a house because they think he's out of his mind. His brothers in the book of John actually taunt him to go to a festival and saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, don't hide yourself up here in Galilee. Go to Jerusalem, baby, and show off. So there's this undercurrent of conflict. But in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is at his hometown preaching in a synagogue. And the crowd says this, second part of verse 2, where did this man get these things, they ask? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to us. Back then, though, you didn't have a last name. So Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. We make that joke all the time. Right? It was a title. Jesus' name would have been Jesus Ben Joseph. Ben means son of Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph, was how Jesus' name was would have been reckoned. Always in Jewish culture, because it was patriarchal, 
Always in Jewish culture, you were reckoned the son of your father. You would only be known as the son of your mother if you weren't sure who the father was. You remain unconvinced about Mamzer. Shall we go to the book of John? I shall convince you. So Jesus gets in this pretty amazing discussion with some religious leaders. And he's making messianic claims. Anybody who says Jesus never claimed to be Messiah just doesn't know the New Testament. He's doing it all over the place. And it's particularly obvious in the book of John. And the religious leader's response is particularly harsh in the book of John. And one of the things that Jesus says is, listen, there are two witnesses who testify to my messiahship. I am one witness, and my father is the second witness. And by father, he means father in heaven. Notice verse, we jumped early. Notice verse, I love it. Notice verse 18. Jesus says, I am one, uh, John 8, 18. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me. Now, Jesus is referring to who when he says the father? God. He's not referring to his earthly father. But the religious leaders think he's referring to his earthly father. So they come back with, where is your father? You're naming your father as a witness. Where is he? You remain unconvinced. Go to later in the chapter. Go to uh, (laughs) to verse 41. Jesus, you should read this whole debate. So Jesus is is suggesting that the religious leaders were children of the devil. Okay, you never want to be called that, let alone by the Messiah. They say, no, 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 Abraham is our father. And Jesus replies, if you had Abraham as your father, meaning if you were really Jewish, the way that Abraham was Jewish, you would welcome me and not try to be putting me to death. And then they say, Verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the things your own father does. And then notice what they say. We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Now, in Greek, it's better said, we are not the products of fornication, which was the word that was used to describe illegal unions. Jesus gets taunted. We're not illegitimate children. Where's your father? Isn't this Mary's son? Go if you would to Luke chapter 2. Can we agree that the Christmas story as we see it in our little nativity scenes isn't exactly how it went down? Can we agree? I mean, let's, let's take the baby Jesus, for instance. Okay, in the nativity scene I have, the baby Jesus is smiling. The baby Jesus doesn't have a cone-shaped head. And do you, listen, there's some, you, some of you here have never seen a newborn baby. Some of you here are young, and you've never seen, they are awfully, just they're alien looking. They're white and scaly and gooey and bloody, and literally, I, here is your son, and I'm going, Ah! You know, I'm thinking of Alien, you know, when they pull this thing out of the dude's stomach. I mean, it was just awful. And the cone-shaped head through the birth canal. I mean, it's horrible. 
Hogue Hospital made us sit through these videos just to prepare us for the horribleness of this thing. Right? It's like, clean him up and I'll take him in like two hours. But the baby Jesus, he's just so sweet and precious. And Mary, she doesn't look like she's just given birth. You know, she's just chilling. She's got her halo on and she's just here with the baby Jesus. And Joseph, listen, we don't know of any midwife who helped Joseph deliver. Joseph delivered the baby is probably our best guess. And let me tell you, this dude's like 18. He's horrified. He had to catch the thing and swaddle the thing and cut the cord. I mean, but in the, in the nativity scene, he's just, of course, of course. He's got his, looking at Mary's halo. And then there's no poo around the animals. It's just all nice smelling and the animals have halos. You're like, come on, this is so not how it went down. Now, there is disagreement over whether or not this tag, uh, and there were levels of mamserness back in the day. So there's disagreement over how much this affected the ministry of Jesus. I will tell you that the year 170, between 170 and 180 AD, there was a heretic who was going around saying, and he's quoting actually a legend, a Jewish legend that you can find in later Jewish writings, that Mary had actually had an affair with a Roman soldier named Panthera, which in Greek is an interesting wordplay on the word for virgin. So they took the word for virgin as the Christians were proclaiming virgin birth, and they came up with this legend that, no, she'd actually slept with a dude who sounds like the word for virgin in Greek. And this was one of the arguments against his messiahship. Again, the question is, if you're Messiah, why do you come this way? So one last little bit. This part is speculation on my part, but it won't stop me. Luke chapter 2. Caesar Augustus issues a decree, right? Joseph is of the line of David, has to go back to his ancestral hometown to register himself, his family. In other words are all journeying to Bethlehem to register for the census. He's got Mary, verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. It's just like no big deal. Of course, they're engaged and she's pregnant. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, bless you. This, this is a bit where we sanitize it. The word inn doesn't mean motel. The word inn, means, the word inn in Greek is kataluma. And kataluma is used two other times in the Gospels to refer to a guest house or a guest room is better Better said. In other words, you would have a main... Some, some of the Jewish homes in Bethlehem would have had a main... Uh, room, maybe they would have had a step-down ledge where, and a space where you could bring animals in during bad weather. Some of the, the upper-class ones would have an upper room that would have been called a cataluma. So when Jesus is going to Jerusalem for Passover, he will say, prepare the cataluma so I can celebrate the Passover meal with my disciples. The word doesn't mean in per se. It means it's better translated cataluma, which is better translated guest room. Now, here's the question I have for you. This has never made sense to me. She's pregnant. She's a teenager. This is David's, this is his hometown-ish, right? He's of this line. So he was related to people who were going to be at the town. 
Middle Eastern culture is renowned for hospitality. If a stranger shows up at at your door, guess what you do? You give them your best. Because the reputation and honor of your village is associated with how well you are hospitable to a guest. Why pregnant, family, and hospitable, right? That whole thing should have said, Mary, here you go, take a nice room. Why was there no room in the guest room? Was it just because people, it was crowded? It just doesn't work like that, men and women. Now, the Bible doesn't say why. But I want to suggest, if I had to put money on, it was because Mary and Joseph were a scandal. They had scandalized their families by trying to pull this off. And the folks very righteously thought, there's no place for you here. There's no place for you here. Now, again, I'm reading in a bit. You've got to understand. But I think it makes complete sense. I've never understood that part otherwise. How in the world do you just kick a pregnant girl out to have birth, to give birth in a cave? Really? It makes sense, though, if you understand that Jesus was thought of this way. Isn't that Mary's son? We're not illegitimate children. We're not products of fornication. I mean, you just, and again, it hung over Jesus even after the New Testament documents were put together. So what is the point you may be asking? Maybe you asked that several minutes ago. (laughs) Big point number one is that God drew near in Christ. Big point number two is that the way he drew near robs us of the opportunity to shake our fist at him and say, you don't understand. You understand that? Like, of all the ways for Messiah to come, he came so that all the cards were stacked against him. God, you don't know what it's like to be poor. God, you don't know what it's like to be mocked, to be scorned, to be betrayed, to be disappointed. You don't know what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be in agony. You don't know what it's like. See, he robs us of the opportunity to push him away that easily. Because this was divine solidarity. This was a sympathetic high priest we have in Jesus. This is a Jesus who ensured that he would face every evil the world has to offer, showing it can not only be conquered, hallelujah, but literally, he understands. I mean, two of the most powerful words that people can say to each other are me too. Right? That's why support groups are so powerful. You come in, you're an addict, and you're thinking, no one's ever beat this, no one ever has ever been this ugly, this hideous inside, no one has ever been this addicted, and somebody comes alongside of you who's been working the program, and they say, me too. I know exactly what that's like. There is something massive that happens in those moments. Why would Messiah come this way? I'm going to tell a story, a personal story that's going to involve two swear words. How old are you? So you've never heard swear words at 16 and and 14? I will do something very obvious. I know. Your mom's going to cover your ear, sweetie. I'm going to do this. You got this? When they're coming. 
Parents, you will cover their ears unless you want to be explaining things on the way home. The words are central to the story I'm going to tell. They're not superfluous, so forgive me for telling them. But I warned you. Okay? Are you ready? Okay. You will be wondering at some point, what's, what's the point of this story? In the same way you were wondering what's the point of the sermon, you will be wondering what's the point of the story, and then perhaps there may be a joining of points. Now, I grew up in the great state of Ohio. I grew up in the small little town of Lexington, Ohio. A metropolis of 3,000 people with one traffic light, one blinked. So we had one and a half. In Ohio, you don't have pools on every street corner. You don't have pools behind all the houses. We have bathtubs in our homes, and that's as far as it goes. Instead, what we have at the center of our community was a community pool. It would open, um, what's the holiday in May? Memorial Day, closed Labor Day, and that was it. When you were off school, everybody went to the pool. Now, I... As a junior high boy at this time in my life, an incredible, I, I was just incredibly secure as a junior higher. <laughs> Who's secure in junior high? Nobody. And the pool was arranged so that there was an epicenter of cool at this table. And then rotating out in concentric circles, but progressively decreasing levels of coolness were other picnic tables. You get the picture. The cool kids were here, and then kind of cool, maybe cool, semi-cool, not cool, not even on the cool scale, okay? Now, this will shock you. I only had one friend in junior high. His name was Travis, and he and I didn't even qualify for a picnic table. We were that uncool. Now, we didn't know we were uncool. We just thought, doesn't everyone just have one friend, you know? We're friends on Facebook today. It's, it's good, you know, just to reconnect with my one friend. Now, there was one day when I showed up to the pool. It's between 7th and 8th grade. I show up to the pool, and it had rained, so nobody was at the pool. There were like 10, 12 kids there. Where do you think we all sit? At the cool table. Now, I've never been at the cool table. I sit down. Now, parents. Both hands. Don't just cover one ear. Are you ready? Okay, carved into the table. Ass plus Bag equals Mike Erie, okay? Right, awesome. Okay, do this, do this. Why are you reacting? You weren't supposed to hear that. All right, do this, which means un- unleash them. Now, I read this. I was destroyed, right? I mean, oh my goodness, it wasn't just that somebody took the time to carve it so nicely into the wood of the picnic table, but it was that every time the cool kids sat there, that's what they saw. So, I mean, I literally looked. I was horrified. I ran home, didn't go back for the rest of the summer. And as I look back, because I'm now like 24, as I look back on those moments, I, like, you, you ever hear the rhyme, sticks and, to- sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt me? Well, that's, that's a lie. That is a lie. Names do matter. The reason I am so compelled by the person of Jesus in the Christmas story is because he comes as somebody who understands what it's like to be excluded and shamed and cast aside. He comes as one. I mean, why were the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors so compelled by Jesus? 
They saw somebody who was sympathetic to them. He never excused the sin, ever. And yet he wouldn't allow them to define themselves by it. Here's what I know about you. As a collective, we come in with all sorts of stuff. Names, identities that are false, habits that define us, relationships we can't escape. I mean, whatever it is. And very often we look at this Jesus and we think that the only parts we can bring to him are the good parts, the beautiful parts, the parts that are religious. The parts that are shame, the parts that are humiliation, the parts that are disappointment, the parts that are frustration, the parts that are, we're embarrassed of. Those parts we just got to keep covered up. The rest of my high school like the rest of my school career in that community was spent trying to outlive those words. Just somebody, I will do anything, accept me, approve of me, whatever. And the whole Jesus conversation is so powerful for me that he would come with even the hint of the scandal. Because in doing so, he makes room for us. He's not repelled by grief. He's not repelled by brokenness. He's not repelled by scandal or screw-ups or mistakes. I love that about him. Because where do you find him at Christmas? In the bright lights and the tinsels and the traditions and the carols? Maybe. But the first Christmas wasn't so pretty. Two teenagers in a cave, most likely abandoned by their families to some degree, wondering if they'd misheard God. And then here comes Jesus in the middle of that. I love that. He would come that way so that nobody could push him away and say, sorry, bud, you don't get it. So this morning, the invitation, and this sounds so cliche, but it is to really trust him with the ugly stuff. It's not just the pretty stuff, not just the good stuff, not just the put-together stuff. And it's not just the sin. I mean, sometimes it's like, hey, Jesus, you can have all of my sin. I keep everything else. And he's like, well, to follow me is to follow me with all that you are. And so maybe celebrating his birth has less to do with credit card debt and consumerism and instead recognizing that there isn't a circumstance ugly enough that he won't invade. There isn't pain big enough or a mistake horrifying enough that he'll stay far away. Wherever he's welcomed, there he will be found. And that is great news. That is great news. So let me pray for us, and then we just get to praise him for a bit more. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that the outcasts and the misfits and the screw-ups and the failures and the addicts, I'm grateful that the poor and the needy and the sloppy and the not put together all found their way to you and that you welcomed them and us with open arms. Jesus, we live in a world that ranks and that compares and that is constantly reminding us about who are the in kids, who are the kids that are out, who are the adults that are successful, who are the adults that are not. And God, we welcome you into our lives yet again 
as the one who draws near regardless of where we rank, regardless of where we fall, regardless of how screwed up we are. We praise you for that, Lord Jesus, that you are Yahshua, that you are Emmanuel, and that there was this hint of scandal surrounding your birth, that it might even be suggested that you were considered Mamzer. And Lord, we don't know what that meant or how it worked, but we just thank you that you drew near in a way as to be so humble and approachable that we could call upon your name 2,000 years later. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.